0: Good morning, my name is Danielle Morrow, and I'm a member here at Redemption, and I have the privilege, the great privilege, of getting to read God's word for us this morning. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. That I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is God's word for us today.
1: Uh, One of the the privileges of being a guest preacher is you get to speak well of pastors to their churches. Um, God has really been kind to this church in raising up Danny and Ron and the other elders. Um, Danny has become a good friend over the last few years and I've gotten to hang out with him and the rest of the team through uh, Charles Simeon Trust workshops at Crossway over meals. Um, and I have, I have come to know them as men who love God and love the Bible and love this church very much. So I, I hope that you give thanks to God for them and pray for them. Um, it's really a privilege to be up here to see what God's doing at redemption. So let's why why don't we pray together as we prepare to look at God's word? Father, I do i I do want to pray for this church that you would build them up in your word and in the gospel, so that they might bring glory to you in this city, so they might bear witness to the gospel here, and that many might turn to you and be born again and be transformed in the image of Jesus. And we want to entrust to you this time, this, this precious time to open your word. God, we, we receive this book as you speaking to us. And we want to give you our hearts, we want to give you our attention, we want to hear from you, because we know that whatever you say is for our good, and for our joy, and for our upbuilding. And so Father, we pray that you would come and that by your spirit you would speak, and it would be for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, at Crossway this year, we have, uh, we're doing a church-wide emphasis on prayer. We know we've got room to grow in that. We want to grow in enjoying God together through prayer and drawing near to him through this gift of prayer that he's given to us. And one of the ways we're pursuing that is we're spending some time in the Psalms. God, God has given us the psalms in part because praying doesn't come naturally. You would think that it would, but it doesn't. You would think that nothing could be more natural than praying. We were made by God. We were made for God. What could be more natural than speaking to God? But it isn't. It, it doesn't come naturally. We, it slips our minds completely. We spend an entire day living without reference to the greatest reality in the universe, or we, we set aside time to pray and we come right to it and we don't have anything to say. Or we say the same things we've said over and over without even our minds being engaged. Prayer doesn't come naturally. And so God has given us the Psalms to teach us the language of prayer. And he teaches us the same way we teach our children. Right, how do you, how do you teach your kids If you've got kids, how do you teach them to speak? You teach them by speaking to them way before they can ever speak back. When our kids, I've got, I still have young kids, but they all talk. But before they could talk, we talked to them about everything, where we were going in the car and what we were having for dinner. And we asked them questions we knew they couldn't respond to. Why why are you crying? Do you have a poopy diaper? Right? They're not going to tell us, but we're speaking to them. We're giving them language trusting that when the time comes, they will be able to then have words to speak back to us. That's what the Psalms are for. They, God teaching us the language of prayer. They teach us how to go to God with our joy, with our sadness, with our anger, with our fears, with our questions, with our gratitude. They give us words to go to God in all the situations of life. To switch the metaphor a little bit, you could think of the, the Psalms as almost a toolbox That there's a prayer in the Psalms for any situation you would find yourselves in. When when we've sinned and we need to repent, we have Psalms 32 and 51. When we're crying out to God and he's nowhere to be found, we have Psalm 77. When, When we need reassurance of God's fatherly tenderness, we have Psalm 103. When everything in us cries out, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, we have Psalm 150. Psalm 86 is a prayer for the day of trouble. And you can see us, David tells us right in verse seven, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. And I think David's turn of phrase, the day of my trouble, that registers with us. Because we, we all recognize that there's, there's a kind of trouble that's everyday trouble. It's real trouble, but it's just part of the baseline. Right? The, the, the frustration that things at work take longer than you think they should. Conflict at home that just leaves you deflated as you're going to bed. Unexpected car repairs. There's, there's baseline everyday trouble. And then there's the day of trouble. The trouble that knocks the wind right out of you. The phone call you've been dreading. The test results. The pink slip. The trouble that makes you feel like the ground is giving way beneath you. Psalm 86 is a prayer for that, for the day of trouble. David tells us his trouble in verse 14. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life and they do not set you before them. His enemies are conspiring to kill him. Maybe maybe your day of trouble has to do with enemies. Maybe someone at work is trying to get you fired. Maybe they're not coming after your life, but they're coming after your reputation. Maybe you're the subject of cruel gossip at school. Maybe your day of trouble is something different. You may not re- relate to David's exact situation, but you can maybe relate to how it's affecting him. Look at verse two Preserve my life. He fears for his life. Verse four Gladden the soul of your servant. His soul is cast down, he's sad, maybe depressed. Verse 1, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. David's trouble has made him aware that he's not sufficient for his circumstances. He's overwhelmed. He needs God. Maybe that's you. Maybe what you're facing is too much for you. You don't have it in you to get through this. Maybe you've been there. We all will be. How do we get through a day like that? Or a year like that? Or a decade like that. How does David get through? He gets through by knowing where to turn. What makes all the difference for David in his day of trouble is knowing that he's not alone in it. He has God. And it's not just God's existence that brings him through, but it's God's character. David has come to know specific, precious truths about God. And in the day of trouble, those truths become his lifeline. So we want to look this morning at the truths David clings to and the kind of prayer they enable. So in in the ESV, the psalm has been broken into three stanzas. If you can look in your Bibles, you see a little space between verses 7 and 8. There's a little space between verses 13 and 14. We want to look at each of these stanzas in turn and see how to pray in the day of trouble. So the first truth here is that we we are to call upon God confidently remembering his goodness. Call upon God confidently remembering his goodness. When you read this first stanza, you get a distinct sense of David's desperation for God to hear him. He just piles up request upon request. Look at verse one. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Verse two, preserve my life. Save your servant. Verse three, be gracious to me. Verse four, gladden my soul. Verse 6, give ear and listen. And look at the different ways he describes his prayer. Look at verse 3. To you do I cry all the day. Verse 6, listen to my plea for grace. David is desperate to be heard and answered. And you might, you might imagine that David's desperation is rooted in Fear. Fear that God won't hear him, that God is far off, that he has to sound all the alarm bells to get God to answer him, if if that's even possible. But under David's desperation isn't fear, it's confidence. Look at verse 2. Preserve my life, for I am godly, Savior, servant, who trusts in you. Verse 6, or verse 7, in the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. David isn't praying like this because he's afraid that God won't answer him. He's praying like this because he's sure that God will. He's praying like this, he pours out his heart, he cries, he pleads because he knows that God is listening. And he knows what God is like towards those who need him. There there is a recurring refrain in this psalm. It's a a truth shot through it. It shows up in each stanza. I wonder if your ear picked it up as it was read. What truth about God above all else is David clinging to? Listen to verse five again. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in, here it is, steadfast love to all who call upon you. Look at verse 13. For great is your steadfast love toward me. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the day of his trouble, as David seeks a handhold, something firm and fixed to cling to, this is what he finds, his God is a God of steadfast love. He abounds in it. And if, you, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, that phrase, abounding in steadfast love, is going to jog your memory. Do you remember where it first appears? Back in Exodus 34. If you're newer to the Bible, some time spent in Exodus 34 would be richly rewarded. In, in Exodus 34, Moses prays that God would show him his glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name. And this is what God says his name is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God says, This is my name, this is my goodness. I'm merciful. I'm not hard-hearted. I'm gracious. I'm not vindictive. I'm slow to anger. I don't fly off the handle. I forgive. I don't let evil go unpunished. But towards my people, I put away their sin. I pardon them. And right at the heart of his name, he says, he abounds in steadfast love. God's steadfast love is the settled disposition of his heart to do good to his people. He doesn't just love his people when they're doing well and then withdraw when they fail. He, he's, his, it's the settled disposition of his heart to do them good. Now, sometimes doing them good takes the form of correcting them. It doesn't always feel good. But it, it, it's always, his, his heart is always for them, for their good. If you belong to him, you don't need to persuade God to do good to you. His heart was for you before you ever existed. His steadfast love is why he sent Jesus to die so you could come to him through faith. It's steadfast love. It's steadfast, and he abounds in it. He has heaps of it. He could never run out. You cannot exhaust it. David knows that God is good, and his goodness is such that he loves to help people in David's situation, Look at verse 1 again, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy, and I know that you love to help the poor and needy. Psalm 12, verse 5 says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. He loves to help the poor and needy. Or look at, look at verse 2, preserve my life, for I am godly. Now, don't don't misunderstand David there. When he says, I'm godly, he doesn't mean I'm perfect. He doesn't mean I'm sinless. He means I'm loyal to you. We We all have to choose something to live for, right? There are many things David could have chosen to live for, chosen to trust in, chosen to serve. David, imperfect though he is, has chosen God. Verse two, save your servant who trusts in you You are my God. Save me, God, because I am yours and you are mine. David knows that God's goodness is such that he hears and he helps those who are needy, those who belong to him and those who ask. Verse 5 tells us that God abounds in steadfast love to who? To all who call upon you. And so David, David knows that God hears and he says, He says, I know that you help those who pray, so I'm praying. I am crying out. Help me. He cries out confidently. One of the greatest challenges in praying is believing that God is more eager to hear your prayer than you are to pray. We are so disposed to shame. We sense, rightly, that we don't deserve God's attention, his favor, his love. We're aware of our smallness our sinfulness, our failures, even in the last five minutes. And it's true, we don't deserve God's love, but his love isn't rooted in us. It's rooted in him. It's who he is. And if you are his, if you have trusted in Jesus, the settled disposition of his heart is to do you good. He welcomes your prayers. He welcomes you. He's good. So in the day of trouble and every day you can ask him for help. Because of his goodness, you can call on him confidently. Second, submit to God, thankfully, remembering his greatness. The second stanza of this psalm is so different from the first that it seems almost not to belong here. He's he's desperate, he's pleading, he's in agony, and then all of a sudden he's praising and he's giving thanks. We, we would expect this at the end of the psalm, maybe, once David has gotten what he's asking for. We don't expect it right here in the middle where he's still crying out, but its placement is exactly right. And it shows us what's possible when you know this God in your day of trouble. You can praise and thank him before you get what you're asking for. You can be thankful not just for receiving what you want, but because of who he is and what he's like towards us. As David draws near to God in his day of trouble, it's not just his goodness he's appreciating, but his greatness. Verse eight, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Now, don't don't misunderstand David when he says there's none like you among the gods. He's not saying, well, we all know there are lots of gods and our God is the best. He's saying what what makes God incomparable, what makes it that there's no one like him among the gods is that he alone exists, right? Look at verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. In his trouble, David is meditating on the incomparable greatness of God. There's none like him. He never had a beginning, he'll never have an end. He never sleeps, he never tires, he has never needed to learn anything. He has known everything always. Nothing is too hard for him. He's supreme over all times and places and people, and nations, and circumstances. And he says, there are no works like yours. There's nothing like what, I mean, just look at what you have made, right? Ron and I were talking on the phone this week, and one of the things we were commiserating over is how not being from Wisconsin, it feels like winter lasts forever here, right? We just, we, And we, we all have to find ways of coping. And one of the ways I coped this winter was by planning our summer vacation, just trying to mentally place myself out in the future where the sun still shines. And so this summer, my family and I were going to Olympic National Park, which is just west of Seattle, up in the northwest. And what's amazing about Olympic is its diversity, right? We're going to spend our first day in the park in the mountains, our second day in the park in a rainforest, our third day in the park on the Pacific coast, all within the same park. And God made that What a God to make mountains and cedars and Roosevelt elk and sea otters and starfish. There are no works like his. Think of the Exodus when God brought, he didn't just bring his people out of slavery, but he got the Egyptians to pay them on the way out. And then he opened a sea for them to walk through. Or or think most amazingly of all, God becoming human so he could die in our place. David says, there's no God like you. You're the only God. And I know that one day the whole world will recognize it. Look at verse 9. All the nations, all of them, that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And if that's so, David thinks, then I want to start right now. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. There's there's an attitude towards suffering here that you could never have without knowing God. There's there's nothing too surprising about David David praying for God to help him in his trouble, to rescue him out of it. But that's not all he prays. He also prays, God, in the midst of my trouble, make me what you want me to be. I I don't just want to get out of this reshape me. When, when I come out, I want to come out better. Teach me to walk in your truth. Unite my heart. Suffering, trouble, has a way of revealing that our hearts are divided. If you're a Christian, you've chosen to trust God and follow Jesus. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that your loyalties are still divided. We know that our great concern should be for God's name to be praised, but we still care quite a bit about our name, which is why when we're slandered, it just turns our stomach, it ruins our day. We, we know we should find our security in God's provision, but we still find it too much in our job and in our savings. So when we're out of work or unexpected expenses come up, it throws our hearts into turmoil. We know, in our minds, we know That good health is a gift of God. It's not something we're entitled to. But when illness lingers or pain becomes chronic, we we can become resentful of God rather than thankful. Suffering has a way of exposing that our hearts are divided between love for and trust in God and love for and trust in created things. And when we see that, we know that what we need even more than deliverance from trouble is for our A heart wholly devoted to God. So, like David, we pray unite my heart to fear your name. Now, the fear of God is easy to misunderstand. It doesn't mean being scared of God's punishment. The fear that David is talking about exists right alongside what he says in verse 12 I give thanks to you, I will glorify your name forever. His fear is something else. It's not being scared of punishment. Look look at what it comes from. Look at verse 13. He says, remember in verse 11, unite my heart to fear your name. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. It's God's love that makes David want to fear him. It's because this God saves from the grave. He saves from death that he wants to fear him. The fear that pleases God results not just from seeing his greatness, but his great goodness. One, one of my favorite pictures of the right kind of fear comes from a children's book. I don't know if you guys have ever read The Wind and the Willows by Kenneth Graham. There's this, in one chapter, rat, it's about animals, so that's why, rat and mole are these characters, and they have to go out looking for a lost baby otter. And they hear this music, and they realize someone's playing the pipes, And they follow the pipe music, and it leads them right to where, uh, I think Portly is maybe his name, this little baby otter is. And when they get there, they find that it wasn't just luck. They'd been led there by a divine helper. This is what he says. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him. And without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals crouching to the earth bowed their heads and did worship. The fear of God is an awe of his greatness and love that makes you almost tremble. It doesn't make you wanna run. It makes you wanna worship and live for him and David is praying, unite my heart with that. Even more than being rescued out of my trouble, I want to honor you. And that attitude towards suffering will give you opportunities to talk about Jesus with people who don't know him, because when they see it in you, it will not make sense. Some of you could probably come up and bear witness to how God provided opportunities to speak about Jesus in your day of trouble, in the ER in the chemo chair. This is what's possible when you know this God. So remembering God's greatness, David doesn't just want to get out of, his, out of his trouble. He wants God to use his trouble to reshape his heart in fear and gratitude. He submits to God thankfully. Now here's the final way this psalm teaches us to pray in the day of trouble and every day. Wait for God perseveringly remembering his faithfulness. Wait for him perseveringly, remembering his faithfulness. In the final stanza of this Psalm, God has not yet delivered David from his trouble. In verse 14, those insolent men are still there seeking his life, but as he has, over and over in the Psalm, David knows where to turn. Verse 15, but you. I almost think that but you is the heartbeat of prayer. This came up earlier. Did you hear it in Ephesians that Carl read? But God, but you. God, this is my situation, but you. I'm in over my head, but you. I don't know what to do, but you. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the fullest quote of Exodus 34 in the whole Psalm. He goes all the way to God's declaration that he abounds not just in steadfast love, but in faithfulness. Right next to God's heaps, inexhaustible heaps of steadfast love are inexhaustible heaps of faithfulness. He keeps his promises. If he says it, it's true. If he says he'll do it, he will. And we need to know that God is faithful because our circumstances are not guaranteed to change, not in the short term anyway. When we come to our Father, we come to a person. He's not an app. It's not DoorDash where you know that you'll place your order and if it's not there in a certain amount of time, you get your refund. God is a person. We don't give him orders. We give him requests, we ask. And always under the banner of thy will be done, He's our father, and he wants good for us, but he's also our father in heaven, and he knows infinitely more than we do. He will give what is good, but it doesn't mean that that he'll give us what we ask for. Our day of trouble might last for weeks, or for months, or for years, and so it's so helpful to see what David prays in verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, give your strength to your servant. David knows this might go on for a while, so give me strength. Give me your strength. My strength will never do. Give me your strength. I I can't persevere in my strength. Give me your strength. Give me daily bread, enough every day to get through this. We can wait for God with perseverance. We can depend on him for strength day by day when we remember that he is faithful. He doesn't change. He doesn't forget. He doesn't fail. We can depend on him. David is ready to do that. But we can also very much understand what he asks in verse 17. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. He says, I'm not demanding that you save me all at once, but show me a sign of your favor, of your goodness towards me. Give me a tangible demonstration that you are for me and you will make this right in the end. And we can understand that, can't we? If you're not gonna deliver me now, give me a sign that you will eventually. And you know what? We have one. Did you know that Psalms is more quoted by the writers of the New Testament than any other Old Testament book? And one reason why is that the apostles looked back and they saw that so many Psalms were the prayers of a suffering and rejected king. They looked at Psalm 22, where David says, they've pierced my hands and feet, and the apostles saw the crucifixion. When they read Psalm 16, where David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, they saw the resurrection. The whole Old Testament, the whole Psalms is about Jesus, including Psalm 86. Who was it who ultimately said, a band of ruthless men seeks my life? Who was it in the garden of Gethsemane who prayed, preserve my life, let this cup pass from me? And yet he wasn't delivered from death so that you could be. In his day of trouble, Jesus endured the wrath of God against our sins so that in the day of our trouble, we could be assured of his steadfast love. The truly godly one died for us so we could be counted godly in God's sight. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have a sign of his favor. You have the cross. It testifies for all time of the steadfast love of God for you. And in the day of trouble, it will make all the difference. We will all have trouble. But if you know that Jesus did that for you, and that you are now forgiven and embraced by the God who abounds in steadfast love, in your day of trouble, you have somewhere to turn. Knowing a God of steadfast love enables confident, thankful, persevering prayer in the day of trouble. If your trust is in Jesus, you know such a God. And if you don't know him, he invites you to come to him today through faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, we love that you are like this that you abound in steadfast love, that you abound in faithfulness, that you are incomparable in your power and you employ it in love. There is no one like you. And we thank you that you have sent Jesus so we can belong to you through faith, so that we... We don't have to deserve it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to make ourselves right. We can come into relationship with you. Your steadfast love can be for us by faith alone, by grace alone. And so we celebrate you, God. We give thanks to you, and we turn to you, God. Help us to pray today and in our day of trouble. And through what you enable in our lives, bring glory to your name. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen.